Welcome to Wetwire. This is premium episode number five, Mazes and Monsters. I'm Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. In this episode, we're talking about the movie that fanned a little fire in the 1980s that would soon become the inferno of the satanic panic. After we'd already decided to do this episode, I, I checked around a little bit to see how many other shows might have covered it. And I only found a few, but I noticed something that was really troubling. Every single show that I found that had done an episode on Mazes and Monsters ended like two or three episodes later. Oh, no. They were all like three or four years old. <laughs> and then they put out one or two more, more episodes after the Mazes and Monsters episode, and they were done. Nothing to be heard from them again. I came across a couple of those. Obviously, this movie is cursed, at least when it comes to podcasters. So, everybody, it's been fun. This might be the end of Wetwired. <laughs> Jules, I've had a great time. <laughs> Mazes and Monsters is a made-for-television movie about a few college students and role-playing games. It's essentially a one-hour and 39-minute-long cautionary after-school special. It was released on December 28, 1982 on CBS. And that timing made sure that it would be seen by just about every kid during Christmas break. To understand how this absolutely terrible movie was ever made and why anyone would ever make a movie about a bunch of college kids playing a tabletop game, we need to know a little bit about two things. Dungeons and Dragons and the Satanic Panic. Mazes and Monsters may have been released in 1982, but the social anxiety that fueled it began to take shape decades earlier. Ritual murder had been on people's minds since the Manson family terrorized California in the late 1960s. Those fears found a new focus when Anton LaVey published his Cobbled Together Satanic Bible and later organized the Church of Satan in 1969. In 1978, the world witnessed a true horror when reports of the Jonestown cult's mass suicide were broadcast on the evening news. Now, they weren't Satanists. That was a Christian cult. But all of a sudden, everybody knew how bad a cult could get. It was part of the panic, not only about Satanism, but it was a general terror that you too could be convinced anybody's susceptible to this brainwashing from cults. Or maybe it was the, the fear was made so real because people were seeing interviews with parents of the people that were at Jonestown. And then they're yeah. thinking, well, if their, you know, if their kid can get convinced to go do something crazy like this, what's my kid doing? What kind of influences is my kid exposed to? Worries about what new nightmares may next be brought to life energize films like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. And Rosemary's Baby is a, is a really interesting one because it's talking about the story of a satanic cult in an apartment building that was scheming to use another tenant's baby in a ritual. Well, that movie was directed by Roman Polanski. And less than a year after the movie's release, Polanski's wife, actress Sharon Tate, was herself killed by members of the Manson family. What a huge fucking twist. No shit. And again, the Manson family, they weren't ter they weren't Satanists either. Yeah. But it was this insane mass murder and really mutilation that people could not wrap their heads around. How could this happen? Well, there were plenty of people that had answers to questions like that, even if they were completely full of shit. They were carrying around the answers in their pocket the whole time. All of this wincing dread was also an opportunity for a string of opportunistic gr grifters such as Mike Warnke, who wrote a tell-all biography in 1973. This is a book that 20 years later, unfortunately it took 20 years, was thoroughly discredited. 
he made all of it up. None of it was real. Yeah, it's 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 the same kind of story as that uh that that supposedly Native American guy who was in fact I think Italian, and he wrote the book about <laughs> you know he wrote he wrote the 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 book about uh, being a Native American in the United States, and he was on Oprah and everything, and then it turned out that it was all bullshit. Fucking Oprah again. Yeah, she really platforms some gems, doesn't she? Mike Warnke told a story in his book of his time growing up within a satanic cult and eventually himself rising to the to the title of Satanist High Priest. Herschel Smith, another grifter, in 1974 published his own book where he claimed to have converted to Satanism while he was still a child, but then later renounced it and became a Christian as a young man. Smith crisscrossed the U.S. in his traveling museum of occult artifacts that he christened the Witchmobile. And in an unsurprising, uh, an unsurprising tidbit is that the affairs and event bookings for both these guys were handled by the same Christian evangelist, Morris Cerullo. Looking to prey on the uneasiness and apprehension of an increasingly terrified society, these con men, and many, many others like them, gave talks about the occult all over the U.S. Some of them even consulted with law enforcement, teaching police how to spot a Satanist or identify evidence of occult gatherings. There are so many videos like this with titles like Satanist Next Door and stuff like that, that <laughs> where you have somebody very, very just shamelessly standing next to a spray painted pentagram on a tree or something like that and talking about how this is evidence that there are ritual, there are satanic groups in, in operation in your neighborhood. It's like that sort of fear mongering. Tonight at nine, find out which satanic group is near your neighborhood right. and F what you can do about it. Find out which of your neighbors is stalking your child. <laughs> During these same years and possibly shaped by many of the same cultural influences, tabletop strategy games, a pastime dating back at least 100 years, more, I think they go back into the 1800s, were making a comeback in the form of fantasy war games and role-playing games. The tabletop strategy games historically were really war reenactments. So you you put together Napoleon's army and the type of armaments that Napoleon had and put it in conflict with a, the, a czar's army from another historical period or, for, or Romans against Greeks or something like that. And then the rules were devised about how these armies would be able to meet each other on a battlefield and the, the different values that Le different levels of technology and would you know would what type of advantages those things would give one army versus another it's really more fleshed out details and perhaps a specific context like uh, uh like this specific war or this specific theater but it's a reincarnation of what's always been the case chess itself was meant to be absolutely a form of strategy game and in some of and the original military D &D, strategy yeah exactly some of the original D, D guys talked about how Basically, what they're doing is the same as playing chess, except you're giving the rook a motive. Yeah. And that's really the only difference. In, in chess, the rook doesn't have any, it doesn't want anything. It just has abilities. And in D&D, &D, the rook would want something. Yeah. So th these, these games, these original, uh, these original tabletop strategy games were basically a war version of fantasy football. It's 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 the same exact thing. You have stats, you have abilities, 
advantages, disadvantages, and then you combine them against another team. And when I say that they have same, some of the same cultural influences, all of this same stuff that was going around in society, all these same stories, the like from the Kennedy assassination to Son of Sam uh, taking instructions from his neighbor's dog, and <laughs> the or Saran, uh, Saran Saran shooting John Lennon, yeah, you know, like all of these, all of these events that were going on, the Mansons. Uh, the the murder of all those nurses in the 60s and that mass murder. All of these things, as well as the interest in the occult, which was which was also coming up with a resurgence of a, a recreated version of Druidic faiths and Wicca and things like that. They were the same things that were influencing the creators of Dungeons and Dragons and the other t- the other role playing games that were around. In, in the early days. So originally published in 1974 by Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax, Dungeons and Dragons was revised and reshaped quite a few times until in 1977, it became the, the role-playing game that has spread all over the planet. To add a little bit more color to the 1980s and the sentiments around the occult and the fears that were going to be turning into the full-blown satanic panic. Even one of the film's producers, in an entirely separate incident having nothing to do with making this movie, got caught up in the satanic panic. Mazes and Monsters was in part produced by Procter & Gamble Productions. And until I was looking into this movie and to seeing some of the backstory around it, I had no idea of the volume of films and television shows that were produced by Procter & Gamble. According to IMDb, Procter & Gamble Productions has over 15,000 production credits going all the way back to the 1930s. These are This was a this was astounding to me too. I I didn't know that they had anything to do with film production at all. Well, they have something to do with it, not not so much in the sense of there's a Procter & Gamble production studio or something like that, but they're a huge advertiser and rather than just buying space they were influencing the creation of shows. In effect, shows were getting pitched to the financiers. So you were shopping shows around to sponsors. But then the sponsors were like, oh, hey, change this thing, do this thing different. So they basically had their own production wing division that was responsible for media. And it's it's not the same thing as us seeing... FedEx so prominently placed in that uh, movie with Tom Hanks and the other lead character, Wilson. Oh, you're talking about uh, Castaway. Castaway. <laughs> that product placement is directly associated to this type of relationship with with uh, film and television production. So who knows what kind of uh, demands FedEx had in exchange for the money that they were giving to get that product placement. So they, they paid a certain amount of money so that it was a FedEx plane. And I, I can understand this because it's, it's a much easier sell to convince somebody like a, like a company like FedEx to fund a movie about a plane crash than it would be United or some other, <laughs> yeah. some other airline that's, travel, that's, that's carrying people as opposed unless, to packages. Unless, unless uh, it's pitched to United – and the brand that's going to be in there is going to be American Airlines. Right, exactly. But then, <laughs> but then you couldn't use it. You'd have to make up an airline, and which is what films do. They'll make up an airline. 
Like Schmamerican Schmer lines. In the 1980s, Procter & Gamble sued Amway. So you know Amway. When you think of multi-level marketing, Amway did that. This is one of the They're original. They're the OGs of MLM. They were they were the they were the first really big time MLM scams out there. Can I say scams? Am I going to get sued? I don't know. Like <laughs> they are allegedly one of the original MLM scams out there. <laughs> and MLM is only allegedly another form of <laughs> pyramid right. scheme. <laughs> These are not, by definition, exactly the same things. But you should always be suspicious if you can make money from selling something and signing people up. And mostly signing people up. And if you get money from the stuff other people sell. (laughs) So Procter & Gamble sued Amway because of a voicemail that was being spread among Amway's product distributors using Amway's proprietary voicemail system called Ambox. They had their own voicemail system. How they used this is extraordinary. They were anticipating like shit memes in email chains. That's what <laughs> basically what people did with Ambox. So this goes to show you, you cannot just blame the internet. Basically, as soon as you interconnect a bunch of people, it just gets terrible. It automatically gets terrible. There's something about that that freedom of communication that it just gets bad immediately. When you just give anybody the microphone, like a couple of guys from New Mexico, for example, yeah, right. it just turns into a shit show. The suit says that this guy, Haugen, received a voicemail from another Amway distributor and then forwarded it to all the other distributors. So this is, you know, this is like forward to your address book in email or send to your entire friends list in Facebook. Ugh. Yeah, think of the insanely bad Obama emails that your Vietnam vet uncle would send to you and you get the idea of what was going on in Amway's voicemail system. This is a transcript of the message from court documents. Hey Jeff, this is Roger Patton. I wanted to run something by you real quick that I think you'll find pretty interesting. I was just talking to a guy the other night and it just so happens that the guy brings information in, lays it on my desk this morning. So here it goes. It says the president of Procter & Gamble appeared on the Phil Donahue show on March 1st of 95. He announced that due to the openness of our society, he was coming out of the closet about his association with the Church of Satan. (laughs) Good God. Can you imagine getting this voicemail? (laughs) He stated that a large portion of the profits from the Procter & Gamble products go to support a satanic church. When asked by Donahue if stating this on television would hurt his business, his reply was there are not enough Christians in the United States to make a difference. 